Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. We are recording live from the Society of Hospital Medicine annual meeting of 2019. It's very exciting. We are in National Harbor, Maryland. The conference is going on as we speak, but we have the media room. So we get to sit down and have a really important conversation with four really innovative, thoughtful, and solid hospitalists who wrote a very provocative paper that we are going to do a little deep dive into. It's a subject that in healthcare we are, I think, waking up to. Uh, and it has been there for a long time, but I think that the right attention is starting to be paid. This article is the article that I think prompted a lot of this conversation. And so I'm very, very excited to have the people that wrote this article come on the show. Before we start, just please go and check out the website, www.explorethespaceshow.com. You can find me on Twitter at ETS show, and you can email me anytime, Mark at Explore the Space Show. Love interacting with people who are enjoying the show, and I think this episode is going to be a really good one. If you can leave a rating and a review, and please subscribe on your favorite platform, that will help even more and more people find this content and learn about what we're going to be discussing today. So we are going to sit down with four hospitalists from the University of Colorado who sat down together and wrote a really important paper that was published in the Journal of Hospital Medicine in 2018. So we are joined by Emily Gottenberg, Christine Jones, Marisha Burden, and Anna Ma. They are all hospitalists at the University of Colorado, and they sat down to write a paper. So I asked them before we started recording, I said, okay, who's the lead author of this paper? And they all pointed immediately at Emily. So Emily... Let's just start from the beginning. First of all, what did you decide to title the paper? And then once we have that title in place, we can start to tease out what were the seed crystals to even start doing this work? Great. Well, thank you for having us here and for highlighting this very important topic, uh, shared passion by all of us in this room. Our paper was entitled, You Can't Have It All. And I think that's what many women grow up hearing as they develop both their careers and think about having families. And many women increasingly are told, you can have it all. You just have to do this, 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 and this. And I think that can be incredibly stressful and hard. And I think um, as we embark on trying to have families and successful careers, we feel that strain um, and that conflict. So that's where this began. I'll say that the five authors on this paper between us have nine children now, I believe. So it's absolutely a passion project that came out of our shared experiences. I think all of us, uh, as we are entering our career as hospitalists, also uh, started to think about having families and had young children at the time and had some incredible pressures and hard times. Um, when we started thinking about this project, our most immediate memory of that period of time was the parental leave. And most of us had minimal, if any, uh, paid parental leave, which was incredibly stressful for each of us. And then we started talking with, the, with each other and we took a deeper dive and we thought about it's not just the paid parental leave. It actually started day one when we got pregnant or even before when we decided to think about getting pregnant and really going through all of pregnancy, choosing to have a child, taking that time off and then coming back to work and then maintaining both motherhood and a career for decades. Um, it was really that entire span of time that was both stressful and delightful in many ways and we wanted to highlight that span. I think this article hit at a really good time as well because from my perception, having been in medicine for, you know, 15 years, including medical school or something like that, 
there is an awakening going on. I, I hope, at least that's what I'm perceiving. And as the one male in this room interviewing the four of you, it feels really meaningful that I get to participate in this conversation because I've seen some of these things. And it's not the same, but I had a child as, you know, my wife was, we were very fortunate to have a kid. And some of those things kind of came up for me. And so for me to have this opportunity to kind of dissect this paper a little bit and speak with all of you is, it's very, very meaningful for me. And I really appreciate that you in doing this work are open to everybody being able to participate because I think it is going to be a shared effort in helping to course correct so that we can continue to do the work to make our profession what we really want it to be. When I read the paper, I really felt like I was starting off reading like a disaster novel. Um, and it was really intimidating and a little bit disappointing right from the, the jump to feel that way. I'll start with you on this, Christine. When you guys wrote the paper, right, you frame it around using that, that, you know, that stoic scientific language. It reads like a medical article, but it quickly pivots and it turns into an article where there's, we're identifying a problem. We're sounding the horn here. 47% of physicians in the United States are women. 80% of those physicians are 40 years, 40 years old or younger. So maybe would want to be starting a family when they're in the midst of their career. You read that and you're like, oh, this is not going to make our profession look very good. And we're going to have to step through some really difficult material. As you were framing this article and participating in this work, was there a sense of we are really stepping into some tension, but we can't, we got we to gotta push through. We've got to commit to this and we've really got to say whatever we find, if it's ugly, we're going to write ugly. If it's pretty, we're going to write pretty. But hey, if, like I said, if it's, if it's ugly, we're writing ugly. Yeah, I mean, I think part of this came to our minds after six of us had children within one year. And before that, there hadn't been that many maternity leaves in our group. And so I think we acutely you know, perceived that there, this is happening mm -hmm. and that our group is going to have a lot more maternity leaves. And then we started comparing notes about, well, what was your maternity leave like? Or did you have enough, because we had to string together sick leave and vacation time, and I think we may have suspected that it was potentially going to be ugly just because of our, you know, shared experiences of yeah. um, maybe it not being the same across different um, faculty members of what we had been allowed to take for parental leave. And so, yeah, I, and then I think a lot of times kind of the stories guide you, yeah. you know, and that's the beauty of qualitative research. Mm -hmm. I particularly love to do qualitative research because I think you're not exactly certain what you're going to find. And so I think as we were able to um, complete the interviews, we were able to iterate and hone in on you know certain themes. So that's interesting that what you were saying around this idea of you guys sort of, it sounds like you sort of looked at each other and said, wait a minute, we're having a, there's a shared experience here. So Marisha, I'll ask you this, as you were moving through your training, medical school, residency, into being a, an attending for the first time into leadership, what sort of conversations, if any, before you all sort of had this, the light went on moment and said, wait a minute, this is happening. To, had those conversations happened for you before? Was this part of onboarding, mentoring? Was it part of, hey, welcome to medical school. Here are some of the things we're going to pay attention to. Welcome to residency. Here's some of the pitfalls. Here's some of the things, right? We worry about burnout. We want to make sure we're, you're doing well with was maternity leave, was pregnancy, was childbearing, was that ever part of the narrative before you all came together around these shared experiences? That's a great question. Um, so I, I don't recall that I ever had these discussions with mentors 
um, or other people until you actually get thrown into, I'm about to have a baby. What does this mean for you know me and my family and my career? I had a very probably non-traditional experience. I literally um, was the associate division head when I had my first child, or actually the order was I got offered the new job of division head as I was about to have my first child. And that I thought was like pretty amazing because I was like, I think they have more faith in me than I do in myself because I, I didn't even know. I was like, what am I going to be like when I come back? This is like my first child. So that was like when I first started thinking about it. Uh, I was also lucky that my husband got to have the time off with me, uh, which fundamentally changed that maternity leave compared to my second one where I had two children. Um, my husband did not get to take it off and it was just, um, you're just exhausted. Uh, there's no downtime. Um, and so it wasn't really until I personally had those experiences. And I think a lot of us have children later, so it doesn't come up until later. Um, I think now it's much more of a discussion. I mean, I'm really proud of the work our division does in our department. Uh, to actually really elevate these conversations because I can say that we've probably talked about this more than I have ever in my entire career, wow. probably in the last few years. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so I think there's a huge shift happening, uh-huh. but there's still a lot of work to be done sure. around helping people through this very um, both amazing time, but also just extreme transition right, that right. you go through. So Anna, I'll ask you this. You're, you're doing this work. You're collecting your data. You're having this first a shared experience, and then you're realizing we've never had these conversations before. Then you're collecting data, and as Christine pointed out, you're starting to realize that there's a real problem here. What was that sort of gamut of emotion like for you? And I'll ask all of you this, that as you're putting stuff together, was there a need to kind of lean on each other a little bit to say, this is, this is really hard. There's some counter-transference happening. I'm getting frustrated. I'm getting mad. What was that journey like of actually doing the work creating the study itself, collecting the data, but at the same time kind of being almost one of the people in the study in a a way. Um, I have to say I kind of wasn't too surprised by um, what we heard was happening. What I think really actually I found really interesting in um, doing the interviews as well as coding the interviews and reading the interviews was how difficult it was for my colleagues, our, our interviewees, to actually accept that there was inequity in the system. Hmm. And um, you know, so they would, you know, I remember hearing multiple interviews where people would start out by saying the first thing they said, it was a very positive experience. Their colleagues were very supportive. The, you know, their leadership was very supportive. And then they would go on to tell us these sort of really gross inequities that were happening. And I thought that was so fascinating. I didn't sort of expect that. Where does that qualifier come from? I mean, I'll kind of open this up to any of you. I'm sure you talked about this. Why why is everyone feeling like they have to qualify? It was a great experience. Everyone was great. Everyone was supportive, dot, dot, dot. Disaster. Frustration. Inequity. Exhaustion all of those things, and some of the stories you put in the article as well, and I can only imagine the things that you had to choose not to put into the article, where does that need to qualify come from? I think two things. I think one, that motherhood itself is amazing, and none of us regret that decision, and sometimes it feels hard to talk about negatives related to that, because having my two amazing kids has been the best thing I've ever done. Yeah. Um, So it's hard to kind of sell that in a negative light. 
And I think we did pull out some really positive things that having kids uh-huh. has on your career and how you can better connect and empathize with patients. So there's that piece. Yeah. I think the second piece is that um, we have, again, been told all along, you can't have it all. So part of this is billed to us as a choice. Oh, I chose to have this kid, therefore it's my fault that I'm throwing up every day for six months. I chose to have a kid, therefore it's my fault that I didn't get my bonus for the year because I left two weeks before the year end. I chose to have a kid, it's not my employer's responsibility to provide time off for me. I'll go into credit card debt to support my family for those three months that I feel like I need to stay home. And that happens. And that happens. Those were mostly direct quotes from our interviewees. So the, the story, I'm shaking my head as you can all see, the story that was in the article that struck me the most was there was someone that you interviewed who suffered a complication of pregnancy, preeclampsia, and she had to take emergency leave and she had to try to find her own coverage. And that one really hit me because as a medical director for my team, we agreed and it was you know, the philosophy that we agreed to that for me was very important. If you have an emergency, you have one job to do, notify me, notify the medical director and you're done. Just let me know what's going on. There's an article of faith. No one's going to take advantage. And I need, I need emergency coverage because I forgot it's our anniversary. It's going to be for things where there is urgent need and you're done. That's all you need to do. And then you need to go take care of whatever's going on for you and your family so that you're safe and healthy. And then when you're ready to come back, you'll come back. And then you can trust that the team is going to handle it. It's worked beautifully for us. We've had a lot of emergencies come up. We've had to cover each other, and that's okay. We handle it. So when I read that, that one was, that one, it bothered me. Um, it also made me feel like, right, making editorial choices is very difficult. So, Christine, I'll ask you this. Were there stories, like if you had to do the, the, the outtakes, right, if you were to do the, the director's extended cut, of this article, would there have been other anecdotes, stories, things that you would want to include to amplify what we're talking about? I'm looking at Emily. We were pretty real. Yeah. Yeah. I think that story was maybe one of the most horrific, and yeah. we that did talk about yeah. how to include that, yeah. mostly thinking about the um, confidentiality of the woman, if uh-huh. that was too specific of a story, uh-huh. but um, that was about as real as it got, and yeah. we chose to put it all out there. And I think that that was yeah. smart, because I read that one. I was like, yeah, I was right when I started this. This is, this is really difficult. And it's embarrassing. Um, quite frankly, I was like, we, we, we should expect more from just a baseline. I mean, there's just basic decency and then we can address other problems. That was that. So let's then move, right? Cause we don't want to sit in that space for this whole time as we're having this conversation. I'm curious though, when you went to publication, what was that feeling like? I mean, we've all submitted other articles and written things over the course. There's that sense of elation that comes with, I'm done, let's submit it. Oh my God, it's in print, this is so cool. Marisha, what was that journey like for you with an article like this that is a tough one? It's it's a handful and you know that people are gonna read it and the gamut of emotions is gonna be pretty broad. What was that feeling like of submission, acceptance, publication? Well, probably Emily knows that better than anybody as a uh, first author who gets to go through uh, all of that. So I, I can definitely like sort of rely on you if you want to uh, pass on that experience. But um, I think probably the most fun part, at least uh, for me, because it wasn't that drawn out, luckily, on this article, because sometimes it can be. Yeah. But sort of the aftermath, I think, of the like the Twitter uh, chat, uh, I had never personally experienced that before. And I think uh, trying to keep up with that um, was like intense. 
I've never uh-huh. done so much tweeting yes. such a short amount of time and then trying to like, you know, uh, grasp what everybody was trying to say. Yeah. So I think that was like the more atypical thing in this sort of adventure. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think. So did it feel different? And I'll ask you this, this idea of adventure. I love this, right? I love this, right? These interviews are an adventure. They're going to go where they want to go. They're going to have twists and turns and things like that. So for all of you, right, you're, you publish this article. There's probably, I would imagine, immediate feedback. You're listed as one of the authors, so I would imagine people reached out. You do this Twitter chat that was awesome, and that's how I actually found out about the article. What are some of the parts for you that highlighted the, the journey of this as opposed to an article looking at you know, interventions in heart failure or something around leadership? Because this is very different. I think the main thing was it, I got it off my chest. Uh, okay. <laughs> I think that it was a way that I could communicate um, how I was feeling without um, getting fired. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to be honest. Sure. So yeah. there's like a moment so that, of catharsis. Yeah. It's this. yeah. It's just that was that was what this project uh-huh. did for me. Yeah. And did you have the experience? Right. You're listed as one of the authors. Your guy's professional contact information is in the article. Did people reach out? Did you suddenly start to have contacts from around the country, from anywhere else, from within your own hospital? You guys are at a big facility. What happened? What happened to your inboxes? What happened with your text messages? What happened with your Twitter feeds when this article went to print? Yeah, I think the most exciting piece was probably just hearing the stories from other moms, whether it was via the Twitter feed, random emails, people stopping us in the hallway just to share. Wow. I yeah. had that too. I had that credit card debt too. Wow. I saw you once vomiting in the bathroom. I was like that <laughs> yeah. too. Right. So I think that was the most fun piece, just to really acknowledge that we all go through this. Some parts are harder than others for each of us as individuals, yeah. but yeah. we all go through it, and that was cool. I think the other um, really exciting piece is, I think on our own campus, people from different departments, different professions have reached out. Um, Christine has actually been instrumental in um, coming up with a hospital-wide policy for an increased paid parental leave Uh for all parents, um, not just the moms, which has been awesome work that sort of came out of this. Um, People across radiology departments, surgical departments, we're now working together to think about how we can support leave for trainees and residents and medical students. So I think that part has been incredibly exciting. And then I guess the third factor is people have actually wanted to do sort of more robust scholarly work on Mm -hmm. this. So the more we talk about it, write about it, get it out there, it will become something that we acknowledge is Mm -hmm. a true inequity, not just a hard thing that maybe we have to deal with. And I think one of the inequities that, Anna, you pointed out, you're in a place, right? We talk in medicine all the time about a culture of safety. We want people to be able to speak up when there's something wrong. It sounds like you were in a place where you felt like if you spoke up or perhaps if any of you spoke up around this, that you might not just get censured, you might lose your job, you might actually get fired. To, to conceptualize something like that, because right to, to get fired in, in the work that we do is, is a, a very big deal. Are we still in that place where if you write an article, if you start to pursue some of these scholarly activities, if you start to comment on Twitter, in an appropriate manner around some of these shared experiences, is there still a fear that you might actually lose your job over something like this? I mean, perhaps it was a little bit of an overstatement, but I think there's definitely... I mean, I've had other people say the same thing, not just around this, but mm-hmm. that if I speak up, I'm. Th- this is the journey around people speaking up in the operating room and saying, we've got yeah. the wrong knee yeah. identified. Stop. Yeah. That's how we started on that journey of using surgical checklists because people were afraid to say anything. So we do have a precedent in our profession around having to do this work. So I think it's fair to acknowledge that. And I think it's good that you brought it forward. I 
are we still in a place where people are still shy to raise their hand and say, this is, this is happening, but I don't want to get fired? I certainly think that um, there is an incentive to go with the flow yeah. and be a good soldier and not complain. And I think you will absolutely have um, a negative impact for your professional work um, if you're considered a troublemaker or someone who's who's speaking up. I think that's so. It falls true. in the trouble troublemaker category. I think that so. you're you're rippling the waters, even if you're right. It's oi. Why are you? But why are you bringing this up? I think this is particularly true for trainees. You know, oh, like yeah. for example, maybe a surgical fellowship. If somebody's in it, they have only a certain amount of weeks to complete it, and if mm. they don't, they can't get a job. Or if they're trying to get a job at that academic institution, and they're the one that says, "Hey, this isn't enough parental leave," they're probably not going to get hired. So I think you know this is probably just like the tip of the iceberg. If you think about it, because we're faculty members, we're not trying to finish our residency, finish our fellowship, potentially get an academic position. I think that they are probably even more so affected by this and unable to sure. speak up and ask for more. So is that some of the scholarly work then is unspooling kind of the layers of the iceberg that you're right, you guys are in academics and you're, you've got a job. Mm -hmm. But if you're a medical student and it's interview season, and it's match day, yeah. and you've decided that you also wanted to start your family. <laughs> have we? Have Good we? That's a, that's a challenging equation, yeah. right? Because the because right is right. I feel like what's happened is that people had to fit lifestyle into medicine, but it's certainly for something like this, it needs to be the other way around. The profession, as wonderful and noble as it is, needs to be adaptive to forty-seven percent of its workforce. For goodness' sake, so how are we? Kind of unwrapping the, the this this uh, this iceberg. How are we kind of raising it out of the water so we can see what's there? I think a couple of things we've heard from trainees since uh, myself in particular. I work a lot with the residency program. Is that residents are asked and told things like, if they're pregnant, oh, do you want more children? Are you going to take more maternity leaves? Questioning like, are we going to lose time from you in the future? Or, um, you know. Are we going to have to delay your training as a result? Who's going to cover your shifts for you? Again, putting on the individual as the problem. I think uh, that culture absolutely needs to change. I think there's some structural things there that Christine mentioned that are pretty fascinating. So you have a certain number of weeks to complete residency or fellowship, yeah. take your boards before you can get a job. If you miss that by two weeks because you opted to take a maternal, maternal leave, which is usually unpaid, so opted for an unpaid leave as a trainee, you delay your entire career for a year. For a year, So yeah. that's one year of not paying loans, not making a salary, not, being not able really to having afford. a job, yeah. Yeah. not being able to afford your new child. Is that yes. where the credit card debt kicks in for people when they're, or I'm sure there's lots of ways that that would kick in. But, so the credit yeah. card debt reference was a mid-level faculty member making $200,000 plus per year with a partner who also has a job. So. That part is real. It's hard for any person um, supporting a family and trying to pay off loans to take three months out of the workforce and out of paychecks. So I think that's a reality that's yeah, far worse yeah. for trainees. This is the hard question. I, I always ask this question when we have conversations like this. And in this one, it's, it's a little bit nerve-wracking to ask it, but we step into the tension and we ask, I, I'm, was there pushback? And how did you have to reconcile pushback to this article? Did you get feedback that of, of any sort where you're like, 
why are you arguing? Why are you pushing back against this? This is the right work. Did you experience that where people said, what are you doing? Why are you writing about this? I almost think that the topic and the way we put it out there and framed it was so in your face that as a, let's say, for example, male editor or male department chair, you couldn't ignore it or shuffle it under the rug? Well, or you could. You'd have been putting yourself on the wrong side you of history if you did. would have been putting yourself on yeah. the wrong side of history. So I think there was some pressure there that it, it wasn't sort of middle of the road yeah. subtle. It yeah. was pretty out there such that people sort of had to embrace it. Yeah, um, yeah. I do feel like you, you presented some prelim results before it was... Uh, published at our departmental grand rounds. And actually, I I have to give a a shout out for the reception that you got. It was actually very warm and more of, um, I think, taken as a way to launch into how can we, how can we get more, you know, pumps and, um, you Uh know, how do we think about this? Because I think for them, I don't know if it was something that the people who were discussing it had really thought about deeply. Yeah. How did you feel about the reception for your grand rounds on this? Yeah, so we gave a department-level grand rounds on this topic before the paper was published. And I think there was an interesting reception in that all the women in the room who had gone through this, again, sharing stories, rolling eyes, of course, obviously, one woman in particular who's professor-level, you know, end of her career, has grown children, raised her hand and said, obviously, this is what I went through, except 10 times worse. And wow. then on the other side, we had some men who maybe were, weren't as you know, intimately involved in this topic or had gone through it personally, raising their hands and saying, so you mean you don't get any time off after you have a kid? Or so you have to pump every three hours to feed a child? Like just light bulbs going off, but wow. in an open way such that they yeah. were... Good. Their mind was being stretched, and they yeah, were yeah. good with that. That was one of the things about the article that when I read it, I thought was, <laughs> and impressive. it is, it, 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 it's, it's difficult. But, th- I mean, there were things in there when I read it that I was like, whoa. And that was one of the pieces of the article that I thought was really good. When we write for scientific journals, they're usually pretty staid. They're usually pretty, I mean, they're bland, for lack of a better term. I think you all, you all did a very nice job of s- demonstrating clear scientific method hypothesis, methods, prove your, pr- prove it, but then leveraging the power of story, which is what makes things stick, and doing it in a fashion where respected anonymity, did all of the right work, but also were unsparing. When you've read it, Marisha, when you've gone back and reread it, does it still resonate the same as the first time you read it? Does it? Are there things that stick out? Is it like reading a book for the second or third or fourth time when you look at it again? Uh, yeah, so I, I think the the work like it's it's a really uh, it's a great article and, and it it's just keeps article. reiterating like we just need to keep working and changing things. Yeah. So it just uh, I think we're a very empowered group of people to mm-hmm. try to really hit at every single topic. And I think members in our division and department we got the parental leave. It is still not perfect. Um, we need to advocate more and more. The breastfeeding issue still you need space, you need time. How do you accommodate those things? I mean we. We've made some progress, I mm-hmm. think, but we have a long. But that's good, right? The article was published four months ago, and to hear you say that some progress has been made, it would have been disheartening if you'd said, "Yeah, well, it's been great. We have a meeting with the dean coming up in April." Yeah. That would have been a bummer. But it sounds like that's not what's actually happening. It, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think as this was going on as part of this effort, we were also trying to figure out how do we organize, how do we 
for lack of a better, how do we infiltrate the staff council? How do we infiltrate the faculty council? How do we start, you know, advocating for this? And so we had one of our administrative um, uh, staff who joined the staff council, and I I joined a faculty council, and um, so that's what Emily was referring to. And there was already some momentum from the staff council around a parental leave policy, and then our department had a two-week policy, but then staff and faculty council kind of joined up, and then the president from our institution last July implemented a four-week paid parental leave policy um, so that we could add that on top. Um, but then also we realized, like, hey, where are you doing your pumping? Where are you doing pumping? You're in that you know place. I'm in that place. And we realized we needed a room. So we found a room and called it the lavender room, I think, or something. I don't remember what we called it. Um, got a, a, a pump, a symphony pump that everybody can use. So Marisha was key in getting that. Um, so we've, you know, made a lot of changes locally and then tried to figure out how, how do we change the structure yeah, too. Yeah. I just want to give a shout out to our colleague, Lai Nov, um, who is a phenomenal clinician and one of the, one of our co-authors and um, on service uh, this oh, week wow. and so yeah. could not be here, so but work, she yeah. was one of um, our inspirations um, in this project as well. That's really great. That's great that you had other collaborators who, they're not at the conference, they're, you know, someone's got to be seeing patients right now. So that's, re- that's very, really, really, really great. What you were talking about though too, it sounds like the words that you're using, I love that you use the word infiltrate. This is this is activism, right? This is this is different than advocacy. This is activism. And I think it's part of what I feel is very exciting in medicine right now is that our generation of docs are realizing that we do carry a megaphone, whether we want to or not. You're allowed to be a reluctant leader, but you're still a leader, but are choosing to use it. And one of my favorite interview lines that I had in one of my podcasts is I got to speak with Mona Hanna Atisha about her book, What the Eyes Don't See. And she said, physicians carry a megaphone and we have to keep it turned on. And you all, I think, have, whether you know it or not, what you're describing is exactly that. And doing journal articles and then going on social media and then doing podcasts, this is, this is activism because you're saying the status quo is entirely unacceptable. It's affecting huge numbers of our population. It's going to cause attrition. It's putting people in unsafe situations, including patients. Mm-hmm. It has to stop. And I think that, that, that did, did it feel like that? Or when we're sitting here talking about it, does it feel weird to conceptualize it like that? That's exactly how it felt to me. So prior to having kids, I don't think I ever felt um, like that I was discriminated for my gender. Okay. And that changed after I had kids. Interesting. So that was within the profession. Because of of my work environment. Uh And, um, And I... And I look at my colleagues, they're literally the most capable people I know. And so the idea that this was happening to us was, it it didn't, I mean, we can change anything, right? So it's just a matter of putting our attention to it and, and saying, you know, and if we can't do it for ourselves, because we're so busy and obsessed with doing, you know, fixing other people's problems, but that we have to do this for ourselves. It's not just for ourselves. It's for our families. It's for our patients. That's right. And that's that's how it feels to me. All of this work that you're describing and that we're we're doing. 
You know, it's interesting. I heard Danielle Schur give um, a talk about, you know, uh, burnout and resilience. And she talked about the incredible sense of duty that she thinks that physicians feel. And I do think that a lot of times um, people potentially have a sense of shame about speaking up or that they feel like they need to bear things in silence because of our duty and because we feel this, you know, I don't know if it's a compulsion for perfectionism, but not to admit that this is hard. And, you know, maybe I am really exhausted and I didn't come up with that differential diagnosis mm-hmm. as quickly as I would. And so I think this is also a way to potentially get people to start talking. Yeah. So you mentioned that you have been able to start getting work done in your local environment, but there's work being done now and you've had outreach and there's obviously this is a shared experience that goes all the way around the world in terms of how we practice medicine and how workforces interact with people when they want to have children with women that when they want to have children, what phase are we in right now? Are we, are you still sort of developing best practices? Are we looking for the low hanging fruit? Hey, here's things you can do right now. If your division, if your department, if your hospital is committed, you can execute on this tomorrow. What phase are we in in terms of starting to move the needle? The paper's written, it's out, the publicity kind of is ongoing, work is being done at your institution. How does it ripple forward from there? I think that's where the different facets of the, you know, call it a two-year experience, um, were really important to highlight because we can fully acknowledge that paid parental leave for everybody has a real cost associated with it. You can make a return on investment case, which is legitimate, and um, there is a return on investment for your workforce coming back engaged and well-rested and willing to um, stay with your institution, but it is an economy of scale. So a small division of 10 people can't necessarily support this. Even a department of hundreds of people may not be able to. So I think in the paid parental leave world, it does take um, health system-wide change, or even beyond that, uh, Colorado, for example, right now is working on a statewide paid parental leave that's um, paid for out of uh, the income tax, I believe. Um, so it does take sort of that higher level, and we're hoping to move the needle there on the paid parental leave in particular. I think the other pieces are far more actionable tomorrow, and I think we have sort of shared some best practices pumping and trying to feed your child for three months or six months or 12 months when you return to work um, is critical and very important to many moms. And there are ways to make that easier and supported, having space and time and the machinery available to do it. I think there is some flexibility around our schedules, not throwing your new mom back to work on the hardest, most intense schedule or putting her on nights, thinking about right. where is there some flexibility right. to lead her back in yeah. or to give her some time as she's ending her pregnancy. I don't laugh to belittle what you're saying. I'm laughing because no. it's absurd that we yeah. even have to think about that, but you're absolutely right. Because there are, there are shift differentials, right? Some shifts are just, they're tougher. Absolutely. And they're physically demanding. And if someone has influenza and they're out for a week, you're not going to make them work four nights in a row when they come back from being sick at home. That's just not, that's not safe. It's not a good practice. Absolutely. And then I think the final theme that I'll just mention that came up for many of the women we talked to was just the support, whether it's mentorship, leadership support, having a community of other women mm-hmm. that you can pump together and eat your lunch together and chat about mm-hmm. things and share challenges and show pictures yeah. of your child. Whatever that support looks like, I think there's ways to create that structure. And you, you mentioned that support. I know that there is a lot of online support. There's the Physician Moms Facebook group, what, 70,000 members now or something like that. Does, do, do groups like that help propagate this work or do they turn into resource sharing? What is that dynamic like 70,000 uh, women 
exchanging ideas around being a doc and being a mom, what does that look like and feel like? I mean, I think solidarity is a big key to the, all of this. Yeah. And I think, you know, just knowing that there's a, you know, that this is a common experience, uh-huh. right. And, and being able to offer that, that support and, right. and, and being able to discuss strategies to move forward. Mm-hmm. It's huge. Yeah. I think being able to share information, like I um, put out um, a call on one of these um, physician moms groups and it was actually the academic uh, brand, research branch of that, but I was asking about uh, coverage for infertility because that's something our university is currently considering yeah. but not covering. And, uh-huh. we're, and so I think it's great for information sharing because that's really t- difficult information to um, find yeah. online. You know, yeah. are you going to go through all the benefits pages for all of these? And so you can really get an idea of what the spectrum of coverage is like. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. So then we get to the part of what's next. So research is being done. Low-hanging fruit is being identified, the things that you said are actionable now, things that will take a little bit more time to unravel, but getting institutional buy-in, we can start doing that work now. So what's next? What are you, what, what are we working on at, at, starting at the University of Colorado, but also elsewhere? What sort of movement has this had? It's been five or six months since the article was published. What, what's happening in that space? I think, one, since we're here at the uh, National Society of Hospital Medicine meeting, uh, harnessing the power of our societies, whether it's hospital medicine or other entity. Um, And so I will say that if you look back, like, say, five, ten years ago at what the annual meeting sort of offered, um, I think we're starting to see changes. Mm -hmm. We have special interest groups that uh, are starting to focus on these issues and then diversity and equity as a whole. And I think using that powerful connection of people across the country to actually help push forward some of these agendas and really pushing it in people's faces so they see it literally yeah. every day until something has changed, yeah. um, I think has incredible power. And we've already started working on uh, many fronts on that. That's great. So what does that look like? Are there pieces that are moving in parallel? Is it um, each one of you has taken something different? How are you sort of sharing the workload? Are you bringing in more people? Because it's a big project, right? This is going to, in some ways, this work really could kind of define your careers if you wanted it to. You could really make this a big part of your lasting legacy as physicians and leaders in our profession. Are you trying to share the workload? Are you trying to figure out what the workload even is? Where are we in doing all of that? Yeah, I think within our own institution, we're each doing our part in different ways. I'm increasingly more involved in our resident world mm-hmm. and trying to figure out how to support trainees. Mm-hmm. Christine, as we talked about, is in the faculty council. Marisha, as a division head, is doing increasing work um, on as a researcher will be publishing about this for us um, on our behalf. That's great. Um, so, I think, so you're able to play to each other's strengths. You're able to yeah. identify, this is what I'm already doing, so I can take a part of this and really own it but you can be accelerants for one another because you're all doing it, you're doing the same work, but you're owning different components? Absolutely. Okay. And I think creating those connections across institutions, states, and even to a higher level, being here in DC is very inspiring to know the voice of physicians, physician groups like SHM, and to be able to think about how to communicate with our local Mm -hmm. politicians um, to move things at a higher level, because it will take sort of a structural change to look at any other country that does this well to support women. So where are the representative, where are places that do this well? Are there good examples that, for Anna, when you're doing the research arm of this work, are there places that you can look at around the world to say, ah, that's interesting, they're doing this really well? Marisha, for you as a, as a division chief, you're running a department. Are there departments around the world that you can say, okay, they have templates. We don't have to reinvent the wheel here, right? 
there are experiences, there are things we can leverage. Are, 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 we, are we able to harvest resources? Are there places that you can look at to say they're doing this work well and we can learn from them? I think Norway does everything perfectly. Mm-hmm. Is that right? <laughs> I'm going there in I'll report back. <laughs> but I, I share that. I was going to say, I think actually maybe more applicable uh, within our own country is just other industries. Yes. We know that already medicine is losing brilliant minds to, you know, the tech industry, engineering. Um, they do you think this is a driver Google. of that? Do you think people say, I'm going to opt out, I'm talented and I want to do it, but because of this component, because of this inequity, I'm, I'm, I'm going to pass? I think Absolutely. Yeah. Potentially as a woman, but also just support broadly yeah. to understand that career fits into life, not life has to fit into That's career. Right. That's right. So thinking about how other industries do this, do this uh, well, are yeah. able to afford it. Yes, Google has a lot of money, but so does... So does healthcare. So does healthcare. Absolutely. They have a lot of money. Yeah, uh, there's no question about that. For the four of you, are you going to continue to collaborate together? Does this, do you sort of see yourself as doing shared work, but, or are you going to say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to take the research arm and go do this. Okay. I'm going to take the advocacy arm and go do this. Are you going to, do you want to try to keep this together? Are you going to publish together? What does the road forward look like? I see a lot of head nods, so that's good. Yeah, I, I definitely see us, you know, collaborating yeah, yeah. and coming up with kind of new questions to ask and new stories to find right. um, that are maybe not out and known right now. That's great. Yeah. I think this happened very organically, and I think that our collaborations are going to continue to sort of uh-huh. be inspired by yeah. different different uh, things go, things that we see that we're yeah. like, yeah, that we we got to put that out there that can, needs we, that needs to be talked about that's some tension we can step into yeah. and, and start to resolve i think one of the the biggest questions that came up out of this study one of the many questions that came up or themes rather um, is that women put off having children until a later age uh-huh. and i think we're all very curious of what that looks like in terms of health effects infertility um, issues, cost related to having to support that infertility or um, you know, health issues for kids or moms afterwards. So yeah. I think we do want to explore that a little bit yeah. more. Yeah. And again, how we can make life happen first and career fit in around. I think that you guys have done noble work on behalf of our profession because this needed a microscope and you put a microscope to it and it's exposed to some things that we maybe didn't want to know or see or acknowledge, but you've done that work and I think that we can move forward. We're all going to be doing this for a long time. We're all going to be physician leaders for a long time. You look around this conference that we're at, right? Let's just looking at hospital medicine. We're the fastest growing medicine, fastest growing specialty in the history of American medicine. Most of the people that are doing this work are younger physicians in their 30s, their 40s, and maybe their 50s. They're in their prime. They're going to do this for a while, and we want to do it the right way. So, you know, tremendous credit to all of you for really leading the way on some really, really difficult work. If people want to find the study, how do they find the study? And then for the four of you, are there ways people can reach out, to connect, to share stories, to follow the work that you're doing? How would we find you? And we can just kind of go around, Emily, start with you. I think probably the easiest way to find the study is if you Google, you can't have it all. It's in the Journal of Hospital Medicine. It should come up, and you can feel free to check out the fun quotes that we found. That's right. (laughs) And there'll be a link to the article in the show notes for this episode as well. Twitter, yeah. yes, easily yeah. accessible, and we have a division website. You can find us easily that way. As and what's well. the division URL? Uh, division of Hospital Medicine at University of Colorado. If you Google that, you'll find us. There you go. Good. All right. 
This has been wonderful. I really appreciate the four of you taking the time. I know there's a, a full conference agenda for all of you to get back to. So uh, this has been wonderful, and I appreciate you being so open and transparent with me and, and allowing me to be a part of this journey in a small way. It's really meaningful for me as well. So thank, thank you all very much for this work and very much looking forward to seeing what happens next, and hopefully the needle moves and moves fast. So thank you all. Thanks for thank having you. Thanks, Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com, and please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show, and you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.